Hello and welcome to episode 67 of WB40, the weekly podcast with me, Matt Valentine and Chris Weston. Well, hi Matt. Here we are again for episode 67. It's been an action-packed week, hasn't it, with the uh, the uh, curling up of the toes of Visa at uh, some time point during the week. Blames on a hardware failure, so the world of computing has not been without its excitement. Yeah, and uh, Microsoft acquiring GitHub, which um, I've been watching on Twitter is leading to lots and lots and lots and lots of open source developers already saying they're going somewhere else, um, which is uh, probably not that surprising in the early days of it. But um, an interesting acquisition from uh, Redmond, and you kind of see how it makes sense. But I can also see, I was thinking about this earlier and how many other software companies who are currently using GitHub, like big software companies who loads are using GitHub, how many will trust Microsoft to look after their source code? And I'm not sure that mm. the likes of, I don't know, Oracle or Salesforce or whoever else, it was kind of in escrow with GitHub being an independent thing, but it ain't anymore. I think a lot of those guys would run Git as a, as a you know as a, as their own instance of something I, I guess i guess what microsoft are doing is that they bought the online kind of as a service bit i guess i guess there'll be a a branch of the code which remains open source but that's just i don't know anything about it so may, maybe not um i think it's it is weird isn't it they've got they've got team foundation team foundation server for example which is a competing technology i suppose in that in that sense and um, I wonder how that will go. And my first thought was, well, I'll just make it easy for them to steal source code, which is you know, a grand tradition of Microsoft's. Um, but um, beyond that kind of levity, you're right. I think I think there are a lot of people who would just say, well, they'll that we'll use other code repositories then, because you know, you know what developers like. like they got they like to integrate their own tools and their continuous continuous integration environments and testing tools. And all of that into your in, into into the source code repository. So, would they, are they still going to be happy to do that when it's a, a Microsoft thing? Good question. Depends how much they leave it alone. I think um, I'm still waiting for the day when LinkedIn gets integrated into something else in the Office suite, which has got to be imminent at some point, but still doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, Skype has been increasingly integrated as a brand, but again, the product seems to sit outside it. Um, actually, no, to be honest, if you think about all the big acquisitions they've done in the last few years, they're pretty much left alone with the exception of Yammer, which was of its time, but you can't really see having much relevance long term. Um, but they, you know, they've, they've kept things like uh, the, the whole Minecraft thing separate. They've kept everything with LinkedIn pretty separate. So maybe they'll just leave it be. Maybe they will. Maybe they will. I think, um, as I say, they've got Team Foundation Server integrated into Visual Studio, haven't they? And, and especially online, the whole thing is is actually quite well done. So I don't know. I don't see where Git fits in, but then I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in this stuff. Um, if we can, maybe we'll, we'll we'll talk to proper coding people soon, and they can tell us. Um, but yeah, it's an it's a uh, it is an interesting move, but another one of Microsoft's. Uh, they've got a lot of money burning the hole in their pocket at the moment, haven't they? So they have, and they have for many years. So uh, it's bound to happen. So how about yourself, Matt? Have you had a busy week? 
Yes, I've been um, off on, on Hulls, uh, living up in the Netherlands. And gotcha. uh, it was very pleasant. And um, what can I say about the Netherlands other than it's very neat, very ordered. Uh, they they also, though, have managed to crack the idea of cycling at scale without the use of lycra. And I think that should be applauded. And I think that we should learn from it rather than the mammal infested backwaters of British streets which is just competitive cycling everywhere and it just annoys me um, I want to get one of those bikes that they have in Holland where they look comfortable and you can sit up and you can see things as opposed to being head down with your head up somebody else's lycra clad backside uh, which seems to yeah. be the order of the day in the UK it does seem that you're not allowed to ride a bike these days in the UK unless you've got all that stupid gear on and uh, cycling around like some sort of lunatic uh, the, the, the Dutch have got a far better um, way of doing it. I, I categorically agree. I think the other thing with the Dutch is that they're less afraid of uh, cars because the bikes themselves weigh about two and a half tons each. So actually, in a crash, the car may well, with its crumple zones, come off decidedly worse. So, Matt, to our regular feature now, the uh, book club. And last time not last week but last time we recorded uh we chose via the magic of the randomizer a book called when the chips are down which is a a look at the history of the bbc micro and how that was developed and the impact it had on schools and uh, government it and things like that so um you uh, you read it i didn't i have to admit it was it, it, I, I, for one reason or another it, it, it i never i never found the time so um I hang my head in shame and ask you how did the, how did you get on with it? Uh, well, it um, I was quite looking forward to it because uh, it's a, a a story that was something that was incredibly central to my life. I actually, I'll come to this in a moment in more ways than uh, the normal maybe, um, but it was. Uh, history written by an academic historian, stroke sociologist, stroke something, and boy, are there still academics who can make a really interesting story very dry. And so it was quite a hard thing. So again, working on the principle of the first three chapters, I don't know everything from the book because I didn't get through all of it because it is a book which actually there is detail of different parts in every part of it. But I think the central theme is interesting and isn't something that I've really thought about quite in this way before, which is the idea that the BBC Micro, which was so central for so many of our generation in terms of why we got into computing, about how it was a platform rather than it just being a computer. So if you think about the things that surrounded it, and the things that surrounded it were a number of magazines, because you know, that's what we did in the days before the internet. And there were uh, a series of TV programmes which were part of the computer literacy programme that was a thing sponsored by the government and the BBC at the time in the late 70s, early 80s. Another part of the platform. It then emerged into, obviously, the software providers who started to emerge from that. It also went into education and schools. The device itself was incredibly modular and the ability to be able to have lots of input and output um, sensors connecting to it, robots like you know, logo turtles and that kind of stuff. Uh, the ability to add coprocessors so you could do stuff in different languages. The ability to be able to put ROM chips into it so you could run... Uh, uh, things like word processors without having to use up all the system memory and remember my dad we had a BBC micro at home that my dad had through his work and uh, word wise I think it was uh, was the thing that he used and that was on a little EEPROM chip or pro, uh, ROM chip um, 
uh, the computer clubs and I remember going at Watford College there used to be a computer club that ran every two weeks I think it was and um, all the sorts of nerdy types from around the area gathering together to be able to share code and talk about computing what they'd done and it, it was hardly the homebrew computer club but it was again part of this broader platform um, and so actually when you look at it in those terms and if you think about that you know that that wave of computing in the UK in the late 70s and the early 80s which led to I think two very significant software companies or uh, very significant computer companies uh, the first was Acorn which led to uh, the um, uh, uh, the ARM work that they did initially with the Acorn Archimedes and that made them turn into ARM the company who were the company who uh, about a year or so ago acquired by a big Japanese bank, but uh, basically a British company that is at the core of the processes in most smartphones. Uh, and the other one, which has not had such a uh, great history since it was acquired by Microsoft, I guess, in a way, but uh, the company that became Symbian, which started as Scion, which started as a small software and games company, turned into the Scion organizer, and then Scion became the operating system that powered certainly nokia smartphones and uh, there was a couple of the other manufacturers who were using symbian as well i think sony did as well um so an incredible legacy that all of that stuff churned out and um there's a number right at the beginning of the book that astounded me but that the amount of money that the uk government put into that computer literacy program was 250 million pounds and that's in the late 70s and early 80s and these days you get you know, Matt Hancock in the Department for Digital, Digital, Digital and Digital really just going completely, uh, you know, off the scale if he's putting up about a million quid for something in today's money. And the lack of ambition that we have for government spending into advancement in science technology these days is just disgraceful. And you think about it in those contexts, you know, it's, I don't know. Anyway, that's a high horse, hobby horse I'm on. The final thing for me was a very personal thing, but um, the one of the guys who was involved with the the setting up of the whole BBC literacy program and uh, was one of the people who defined the specification for what the BBC micro should be was a guy called John Cole, and he was somebody my dad knew, and I hadn't really realised until recently, uh, early on in my career, I was doing my first job and I was kind of like I don't know if this is for me or not, and my dad said we should go and see John. So I toodled along to um, John's uh, company's offices, which are little offices on uh, City Road near Angel Islington, and had a chat with him and talked about what I was doing, and he gave me some advice about what I might do. I hadn't realised this was the guy who was responsible for the design of the BBC Micro. And um, so that sort of really, I don't know, I was very lucky to have been able to be associated with uh, somebody who had that much importance in so many people's computing careers and lives um and as you are when you're in your 20s didn't really realize the significance of anything but there we go so anyway there's the um slightly random observations of the book uh now the chips are down and uh, yeah it, it was a it, i mean it wasn't something that i had it was a it was a bloody expensive machine back in this day wasn't it, it was about 400 quid uh, when uh when a I think it's in close bit spectrum would cost you about maybe 150 200 pounds and and, and the, the other computers are of that of that um that sort of cost but certain but um similarly i i, I would um 
see these machines being used for far more kind of hobbyist things and things that you would learn about computing rather than pressing play on a tape and uh, downloading the latest version of Chucky Egg or whatever it was to to, to ping around at. So you know they were they were they were really important and um, it's uh, yeah it's a fascinating story. Yeah, I think it's, uh, as I say, the, the thing for me is if you put that into the context now, I don't know how anything could be done of that sort of um, importance today just because the, in, the the computing industry is so far advanced from where it was then. I do wonder, though, are there other areas of, not necessarily just science and technology, I think the, the other thing that I, I'm getting increasingly frustrated is the whole STEM-STEAM agenda, which basically says that nothing in the world is important to invest into other than science, technology, engineering uh, and uh, maths, uh, because those ones show the greatest return on investment. And that's just such a nonsensical way of thinking about this, because the BBC Micro wouldn't have happened without people from the humanities and arts as well and it's not just enough to say oh, we do arts as well to make it steam um but we just don't have any sort of real investment into anything these days that is 21st century britain and that's i think a very depressing place to be when you see the amazing things that can ha- come out of investment into uh, things that the private sector just will not touch and that's the the, the other thing i think that reflecting back on it you know, government investment into platforms for the future. The government as a platform, the BBC Micro was the first government as a platform thing, and we're still not doing more like that now. So anyway, should we turn to what will be the book for uh, the next week? Spin the randomizer, Matt. Okay, here we go. And we have, for the next book in the WB40 book club, it's Tom Peters. Uh, He, the exalted In Search of Excellence uh, chap, um, and his latest tome, The Excellence Dividend, is uh, next week's book. So um, we'll put a link to that on the webpage, and we'll put a link into Now the Chip's Down as well. And we will see how we get on with uh, the new Tom Peters book next week. So uh, we've got another interview this week, uh, and quite a long interview, so there's no time for uh, the yin and yang this week. Um, Also, because basically I've been off the internet for a week. Uh, But you went to see a chap called Dave Rogers at the Ministry of Justice a couple of of weeks ago, didn't you? I did. I did, Matt. Uh, and uh, I did that because um, I'd seen that Dave was looking at how to communicate internally with his teams. And uh, that was that, that piqued my interest. Also, uh, MOJ is a, a department that I have had quite a lot of dealings with over the years. And uh, my um, interest in how technology works in the criminal justice, in, in prisons, probation, um, and those sort of areas um, is something that's been a kind of recurring part of my career. So, uh, and uh, re- rekindled again quite recently with an engagement I was doing. So, um, it was an opportunity to, for me really to to find out how things have changed in MOJ. And I think it, I think it's a reflection of government IT generally. But, but of course, in each department, what you really need is a is a technologist who understands that that the world of uh, of computing has changed and we don't do we can't do the things in the way that we've we've done them before because 
guess what? The way we've done them before has been hideously expensive and and prone to a lot of errors uh, and, and failures. So um, good to talk to somebody in in government who just gets it and is working in a, in a much more um, uh, uh, contemporary way, I guess. Uh, so let's uh, hear what Dave had to say. You started by asking him how their internal podcast was going. It's, it's going okay. We're um, so we're, we're doing this. You know, we're doing this quite kind of lo-fi. So we, uh, you know, we had some feedback around recording quality and things like that. But I think people are really enjoying the content and they're really enjoying the idea and what where where we're kind of taking the podcast. Uh, so we're hoping to kind of incrementally improve, you know, the quality, the general quality of the podcast to make sure that we get really good topics to cover, and just kind of see where it goes, really. So is that? Um, do you find that, that podcasts are something that people want to listen to? Uh, is it like a commute thing? Is it something you think that it's a bit more accessible than something like a blog or something you might write, or is it? Do you think it's a you know, it's a mixture of the things that you, you try to do? I think I think where the thought came from, um, it was a member of my team. Uh, to give him credit, it was uh, someone called Calbit um, who came up with the idea. Um, but why it really struck a chord with me is. Uh, particularly for people with very kind of specialist technical skills, um, we tend to find that they they're not they're not usually uh, interested in going to lots and lots of meetings. You know, so we have lots of meetings here. We have you know big all hands events for digital technology. We have MOJ wide events. We have events just for individual communities like technical architecture and software development. And then you've got your own team. You know, you're you're delivering a product. Uh, and you have lots of, you know, you have the agile ceremonies around, around that, you've got planning meetings and so on. So what the podcast felt like is a way of engaging with the teams in a way that was entirely convenient to them. So there is this, you know, downloadable podcast, it's out there, they can sync it with their phone, listen to it when they want, whether that's, you're right, as you say, whether that's the commute at the weekend if they feel like it um, some people like to sign out of work um, or even just sat at their desk at work you know I don't I don't we haven't done the research to figure out when people are listening but we thought that for that those particular communities the podcast might be like a good way of kind of you know punching through the, the volume of meetings and that, that they have to go to yeah that's a really good point isn't it one of the great things about a podcast is it is it is you consume it when you want to and um, you're right, there, there are so many get-togethers and meetings and reasons to be places that um, talking to people and, and, and especially doing it in a way that's kind of more human and natural than, than sort of bombarding people with articles that they've got to read. Yeah, there's, there's something about the converse, conversational style of a podcast that, that seems to work really well. Um, we don't really have to put much preparation into our, into our podcasts. Um, we just... Think of a topic, invite some people who really know their stuff, um, and we just kind of let the conversation flow. Um, whereas, for you know a big kind of stand-up presentation, you've got to do a huge amount of preparation and logistics, um, and and I also think there's something about the way that because it's just audio, you can combine it with a lot of other things. So you wouldn't, you know, I think a lot of people would struggle to watch a, a YouTube video on their way to work. Yeah. Um, but but an audio combines quite well with activities like that. So you've been at MOJ about five years. You were telling me earlier, Dave. So uh, how did you get here? What, what was the what was the what was the route? What what brought me into government was um, I do actually remember quite distinctly. I was at a conference, uh, QCon, that kind of um, runs just near here in Westminster, 
And I saw a talk by uh, a guy called Matt Wall, who was a kind of former colleague from, from The Guardian. And he was explaining about what it's like to work in government. Um, and he was saying, at the time, it was this really challenging environment where he had to, he had to create a space people to work within which meant protecting them from a lot of the what were the kind of negative influences of government at the time around very kind of uh, enterprise big IT kind of influence on technology when all people were trying to get done in his particular area was to build small agile software products Um, and I found that quite compelling because it was showing to me that government is a place where we could work with modern technology and we could, you know, we can use the cloud, we can use agile methodologies and we can get things done. Uh, but the the real prize was understanding that, that could be done in the context of a place where you were doing this really valuable work for, for citizens. Um, at the time, I didn't know I was going to be joining the Ministry of Justice. At the time, I was joining a government digital service and I was part of the transformation team. So at the time, GDS was de- delivering uh, 25 exemplar digital services across, across government. And I got asked to join the Ministry of Justice and support them on the four exemplars they were delivering here. Um, and that gave me, so I knew I'd be working with you know, services to citizens. I didn't know which ones. And I think when they gave me the Ministry of Justice, I was, I was pretty pleased. I was, um, you know, they were, they were the types of services where you can immediately see the value to citizens. Um, one of the first ones I worked on was lasting power of attorney, which is uh, the ability to apply online for uh, a, a, a kind of status that allows you to, um, if you if you lose mental capacity at some point in your life, um, it's a it's a document and a process that allows your, um, for example, your kind of financial matters to be handed off to someone in in a, in a much more kind of organised fashion. So if you don't have a lasting power of attorney, that can be quite a complex process for your friends and family around you. Um, and it was and that's such a such a kind of valuable service for society. And to be able to get involved with that and kind of build it and put it online and ultimately kind of raise the numbers of people applying for this, mm. uh, having that direct impact on, on people's lives was, kind of, I guess, what drew me into government. No, that's right. It's, I mean, I've used that service actually. I used it for my parents about um, only a few months ago, and it's, it is a remarkably simple thing to do, really, given given the, the complexity of the, of, the, of the thing you're trying to achieve. It's you know, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty useful. And I think you're when you when you're in government, especially MOJ. Just I guess I say especially MOJ because it's my it's one of my specialisms as well, and, and, and one of my um, hobby horses is, is around getting information to people just so they have access to justice in a way that's uh, accessible and and affordable. And what what um, what have been the challenges then, Dave, in terms of? Prioritization, given that there's so much you could you could do, how do you how do you go about prioritizing? And so I think there are, I think there are two aspects to prioritization. Um, one is uh, I think a kind of fairly classic and established space, and the other is this kind of new new way of looking at prioritization that we're kind of bringing into our portfolio at the moment. So so the first one is is really that it's that classic thinking around prioritization it's let's let's produce a set of criteria let's think about what we care about so you know you might be thinking about achievability and affordability 
you might be thinking, um, you know, is a, is there a ministerial commitment? Is there a manifesto commitment? Um, is it something that government is kind of looking to prioritise in its own agenda? So we obviously have we have departmental priorities, we have priorities that relate to the digital technology strategy, um, and then you've got uh, things that don't relate to the justice system. So you've got you know what is the size of the audience that you can impact. What is the amount of money you can save? Now, all of this, for me, feeds into that kind of classic prioritization process. And I think what people try to do is they try to, um, you know, create scoring systems uh, and effectively create this uh, in their in their kind of their output is a is a linear prioritization. So we can say there's a thousand things we want to do. This is number one. This is number a thousand. Um, now, I think that. That, that work goes a long way and it's really important to, to kind of be able to compare incredibly diverse things. But where we're going with our portfolio now is we're, we're introducing this idea of portfolio balancing. So what, what portfolio balancing is about is if you, if you do an overly simplistic approach to prioritization, then you actually tend to end up with a very similar set of things bubbling to the top of your priorities. So it might be, um, it might be obviously the things that the ministers are really pushing for, the things that align directly and simplistically to the departmental objectives. Now, what that means is, if you've got something more uh, less intuitively a priority, so a really good example might be a project to pay down significant technical debt in a legacy system. Now. Engineers and, and architects and so on will, will understand that, that that is a really important thing to prioritise. If you don't pay down your technical debt, it, it makes change harder, it makes everything more expensive and everything slower. But to align that to something like a ministerial priority or a departmental objective is extremely challenging. It's, um, you know, you can, but it's very, very indirect and you, and you might take two minutes to explain why it aligns to all the priorities rather than another project where it's intuitively immediately aligned to that priority. So where portfolio balancing comes in is if you can categorise the thousand things you want to do into buckets that you want to intentionally carve out space in your portfolio for, and then you prioritise within those separate categorizations. So for example, we, we know that if we, don't, if we don't spend a single penny on um, paying down technical debt in legacy systems. We know that the legacy systems will only get worse. Um, and we know that that's a strategically bad move. You know, you don't, you don't want to have a, a huge kind of cohort of your technology that's getting worse over time. Um, equally, if you spend all your time improving legacy systems and you don't build entirely new digital services that kind of push the service design of justice and, and, and evolve the way in which we offer services to citizens, then the ministry will never move forward. And there are other categories such as, um, there's one that we want to introduce, which is uh, a, a kind of experimentation category. So I'm, I'm trying to push forward this thinking, which is if we don't run any high risk experiments at all, so we don't, for example, do a little bit of playing around with machine learning, or maybe explore how a distributed ledger might be applicable to, to criminal evidence. If we don't play around with any of those ideas, then the ministry is never going to be an organization that pushes the boundaries with technology. Um, 
we shouldn't be spending all of our money on that. We should, probably should be spending a small proportion, but it's important that that small proportion is not reduced to zero. So if you step back from the whole portfolio and you, you bring in these categories and you start saying, well, we need to prioritize within those categories, but it's important to have the space, uh, some money allocated to each of the categories. It makes you think about prioritization very differently. And do, do technologies um, such as cloud and, and uh, containerization and those sort of things, do they play into that more um, maintainable, less technical debt world that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, in, in some ways, it's the probably the biggest te- technical or technological shift uh, that's impacting all of our technology. So um, we, we, we know what the ideal is for most of our... Actually, all of our technology, we, we, we know that there's this ideal that um, we can change it very quickly. We can change it at low cost. Um, if those two characteristics are present, then we have you know that that elusive characteristic as an organisation, which is agility. So we can we can you know anything from the room booking system through to our newest digital service. If we can if we can change every bit of technology very quickly, then as the business changes, the business of doing justice. So you know new legislation new um, new thinking in society about what our priorities are or new emergent technologies we can adapt to those and where where clouds particularly important is um, it enables the practices that allow us to do that so one of, one of the absolute key practices is continuous delivery um, continuous delivery is surprisingly challenging to achieve as an as an organizational practice but it's the it's the ability to be able to make change to a technology and kind of realise that almost instantaneously. You know, a lot of organisations are making changes into production every few minutes, possibly even even shorter timescales than that for some organisations, and that that is a huge amount of agility to have. Um, now, as we shift our applications to public cloud, public cloud enables us to introduce that practice of continuous delivery. It's possible to imagine that you could introduce continuous delivery into, for example, a private data center, but I think it would probably cost 10 times as much. It'd be enormously challenging and, and relatively pointless because all the tools and techniques you, knew, you need are offered by public cloud. Um, so as we, so we're delivering on new digital services in public cloud and, and, and trying to introduce continuous delivery by, by default as part of how we do that. But then we've got that enormous challenge of bringing our legacy estate into public cloud and at the same time enabling continuous delivery. Um, now that, the reason that's so challenging, I guess, drawing back to the prioritization question is it's very costly to move applications from legacy data centers into public cloud. Um, and it's even more costly if you want to introduce continuous delivery whilst doing that. Um, if you don't introduce continuous delivery, you can get yourself into a bit of a pickle because you've got something that looks like a private data center application in public cloud. It's very inefficient. It's probably driving huge kind of cloud utility costs, you know, into your bottom line every year. So it's not, it's a tricky position to be in. So you, you kind of do have to make the full leap. Um, and because that leap's so expensive, um, it's re- that's that. I think that that expense explains why so many organisations are actually finding it so challenging to move to public cloud. 
um, you know, an, an application that maybe cost you uh, a million pounds to build in the first place um, might cost you, you know, a few hundred thousand pounds to move to public cloud. So, the you know, you, you're actually in some cases getting very close to the cost of a full rebuild, um, and a lot of it depends on the on the modern the modernity of your application. So, if your application is like you know, if you stuck it in uh, in a kind of managed hosting environment about five years ago, and it's got it's got a few, it's mostly kind of modern tech, then you can move it quite cheaply. Um, but if you've got something that is, you know, twenty five years old, it's it's kind of uses kind of outdated languages, outdated databases, and in some cases outdated hardware, that just keeps raising the cost. You know, with almost every year you go back in time, will increase the cost of making that leap to public cloud. Um, and, I, and I guess that's the kind of really interesting trap a lot of organisations are in. The longer they wait, the more this is going to cost them. Yeah, that's right. And I guess you must have you must have a fair amount of um, backing, or at least a lot of courting from the big tech vendors, Microsofts and AWS of this world, because they really want you on their cloud, no doubt. So I guess they try to make it as easy as possible. Yeah, I mean, every every, every major cloud provider you work with, uh, and we work with, my experience is enormously supportive. Um, but they themselves can't eliminate that cost because ultimately the the cost of the cost of when you get there and you, you know let's say you've you've moved your you've moved your twenty five year old application into public cloud you've introduced continuous delivery that's involved a huge amount of rearchitecting and, and investment in kind of renewing components and so on once you get to that place it's pretty cheap. Um, but the transition is is not the service that public cloud providers typically offer. So all the big cloud providers will offer these consultancy services on the side, and there's a whole army of consultants. Uh, you know, all the big SIs will offer this, SMEs will offer this. Lots of people are offering you that ability to move to public cloud, but no one really can reduce the cost because ultimately it's it's complex engineering. You know, you're going to need to pay developers, architects, DBAs, and you're often paying them for skills that are outdated, therefore actually more expensive. Um, so it's yeah, the, yeah. The, the the techniques are evolving, but I, no one no one's really found a secret to take the cost out of this yet. No, I think uh, you're absolutely right. There's no there's no way around it, is there? The, you, you can't fit, you know, something that shape into 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 public cloud. It has to be it has to be changed, and the cost of that change is is unavoidable until you get to the point where you rebuild it, as you say. How does that? How does it um, change your approach then, with with regard to cloud and containerization and the uh, working on a more sort of API based model? How does that change your working with third party suppliers um, of of software and services into MIG? Um has quite an interesting effect. Um, I mean, first of all, it it has it is having the effect of making uh, making in-house software development more appealing for for public sector organisations. Um, I think if you've got if you're starting to create a, a kind of internal cloud-based platform for delivering software, then um, a lot of the Kind of boilerplate costs that you get with with having your in-house software team starts to lower over time, um, so it is kind of making in-house more appealing, and this is obviously for bespoke software. Um, the MOJ and, and most public sector bodies are obviously 
trying to move towards software as a service model where it possibly can. So if we if we don't have to build the thing, that's always the optimal answer because it's cheaper. Get that service offering um, and then and move towards SaaS. There is this tricky middle space, which is uh, government and, and actually a lot of the private sector have historically tried to outsource the development of bespoke software. Um, and then over time that can evolve into quite complex relationships where you've effectively got a supplier that owns, um, well, is, is the kind of de facto owner of the software product, um, but it's so bespoke that it's, it's not really, they can't really sell that to other organizations. Um, and a big factor there is whether or not the intellectual property falls on, you know, falls with the owner or falls with the small supplier. That can have a huge effect on the dynamic. Um, but ultimately, public cloud is making that quite challenging. So if you if you imagine that you you outsourced a uh, small case management system, you know, ten years ago, probably no chance you would have put that in public cloud in public sector. You you build that system. It's relatively complex. Now that transition I described earlier, where you've got to re-architect and do a lot of change to, to software products to move them to public cloud, that gets really challenging with the, the economics and dynamics of working with those smaller suppliers, because ultimately somebody's got to pay the cost of that shift. If you don't own the intellectual property, then you're probably going to try and encourage that small provider to move to public cloud. but. Ultimately, it's kind of their choice as a company. You know, they, they can actually hold back on that. If you own the intellectual property, then you might have to kind of give them lots of money to move to public cloud. But that introduces something very interesting, which is that moving to public cloud is about culture and practice change as well. So we know working with our in-house teams, that if we move an application to public cloud, it has a huge cultural impact on the team. You know, you're, you're moving from practices where developers work in extremely long-lived feature branches they um, you know they they have manual testing suites and you know various practices that are that are kind of correlate with with kind of older you know private data centers and older kind of ways of working to transition them to continuous delivery is this you know it's a huge culture change it's, it's a mindset change it's 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 hugely liberating but also quite scary for teams like you've 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 lost uh, an amount of control developers may be you know committing to production without the safety net of a huge manual testing team you know just they've got the responsibility of building a testing suite themselves that's quite a lot more responsibility and if you're trying to make that culture change happen in somebody else's organization, like an SME that owns a small case management system, that's very challenging. And I think it's a, it's a space that we've only just started to work with, and it's gonna be interesting to see where that goes. I'm trying to remember the Netflix uh, term, is it Chaos Monkeys or something they, mm -hmm. that they have in their system which deliberately try to break things. Can you ever imagine being in that culture in a government department? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's definitely the goal. Um, I mean, our, our kind of chief, chief information security officer is just as interested in chaos engineering as I am. Um, it's it's definitely a vision. Um, you know, all of all of the techniques that they use in in the kind of um, simian army or whatever they call it. These are machine guns. Yeah. Also, isn't it? Um, all of those techniques are really really compelling for modern cloud architectures. 
um, but they're completely irresponsible for uh, yeah. you know legacy system architectures. So you've got a, you've got a long journey of maturity to go on before you can start to effectively introduce chaos engineering at scale. There's no reason why the public sector can do do that. And uh, you also mentioned things like blockchain and AI, machine learning, and I know that I've seen the court service, they're investing in RPA, aren't they, and things like that. Do you think that that's a, again, do you think that's something that will happen in-house in MOJ, that that's something that will be a big part of that, or do you think it's something that will you'd look to outside for to do that kind of investment or innovation? So I think there's a few answers to that question. So the first one is like, I'm, I'm very keen to differentiate types of emerging technology and um, their intrinsic value. So I've, I've, I think I've been, I've, I've tweeted about this a few times, but robotic process automation is something I would immediately park to the side and say, that's not really emerging technology. That is something that consultancies are trying to sell to other organizations. Um, and it's, it might be the right answer to the question in very, very few circumstances where you're very tactically trying to save money, yep. but ultimately it drives complexity, like avoidable complexity into your technology, it increases technical debt. So it's something to be very, very careful about. It's a stick and plaster in many ways, isn't it? it yeah. and, and it's 20 year old technology, probably further than that. It's, it's, not, it's not a new thing. There are, there's some quite cool, cool ML type uh, things you can build into it for allocating tasks to people or, or robots and whatever, but as you say, you're kind of you're you're building in the, the debt rather than rather than breaking it apart, aren't you? Yeah, and most of, I mean most developers who read up on it go, just go, isn't that just selenium? You know, it's yeah. it's it's they're surprised that it's the thing, yeah. and it's definitely not robotics. That's the other thing. Um, Blockchain's another one just to be careful about. Like we we tend to avoid the term blockchain and mainly talk about distributed ledger technology. Um, so if you're talking about distributed ledger uh, machine learning, for example, the answer to your question is, I believe we need to be doing that in-house and buying it. Um, the idea that we wouldn't be buying it is absurd. Like the entire market is transforming and uh, machine learning is, is entering into all kind of product spheres. I mean, it's, it's already there. We use G Suite, you know, we, we're using machine learning extensively on a day to day basis every time we write an email. Um, but I do, I do believe that um, it's, we, we need to carve out a role for the public sector doing low cost uh, experimental work. It's, um, I know from kind of, uh, kind of former colleagues and stuff working in, in kind of more startup areas of the industry that machine learning can be delivered at incredibly low cost at the moment. Um, you know, all the tools are there on AWS for you to do it. Um, and that means that we should, be, we should be treating that like another tool in the toolbox that developers should, should reach for if it's the right shape of tool to solve the problem they're trying to solve. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that within, within the ministry. Um, I think distributed ledger is a little bit different. Um, it, I've got this sense that to make a distributed ledger work um, in in its kind of intended intended way, which is which is that there shouldn't really be a central authority, uh, a central kind of point of trust. That's quite an undertaking, and I think particularly for a public sector body. Um, there are, we, we blogged about this last November, I think actually, we, we blogged about this idea that you could use distributed ledger for criminal evidence. Um, so if you submit criminal evidence to the justice system as a, as someone involved in the justice system, you might want a kind of 
a degree of independence of trust that your evidence won't be corrupted during during the justice process whether that's the kind of you know video recorded from your bike helmet or a photo you took on your smartphone you might want a little bit of trust back to say that is the artifact that's been presented as evidence in court um, I think that's quite a challenging proposition for the justice system because it requires a degree of kind of um, I would describe it as just humility of us to understand that it's natural for people to not trust the justice system um, even as much as it's our very goal to make them trust the justice system and I think people would trust it more if we used clever techniques like that to kind of increase people's trust in evidence um, but to get an idea like that off the ground is that's huge you know it's um, you know people start people are starting to talk about it we kind of you know the ideas are kind of you know been discussed at a very kind of early stage with policy teams and technology teams maybe there's an idea here um, but it's a long way from forming into a, an actual kind of position or, or project or investment um, and likewise it's happening in the academic sector I think um, I think I saw earlier that um, I think Oxford University are doing some work in this space around distributed ledgers for criminal evidence so it's you know it's not something that's going to ex exclusively come from just something delivered by MOJ but I think we as a as a kind of society and technology industry we will, we will gradually come to ideas like this and, and test them out I would imagine in quite narrow circumstances before we, we realize their true potential so as you um, as we uh, move to in, into the future and, and and your podcast becomes massively successful with the <laughs> government and a, and a trailblazer for other other areas um, what do you, what, what do you see doing in future Dave what's what, what are future topics for the podcast um, so I mean we're obviously at a very early stage we, we've been kind of brainstorming some ideas so um, uh, well, the, the one that's coming up this afternoon is going to be about the next generation of workplace technology. Um, so I, I don't really know the way that's going to go, actually. We might be talking about maybe kind of 5G uh, and how that could kind of revolutionise, you know, our, our attitudes to wired networks. Um, we might be talking about uh, kind of meeting room technology. Uh, Security is one that's come up in our discussions in the past. How do you know that the person in the workplace is the person that should be there? And how many different factors of authentication to get to different parts of the system? You know what I mean? If, yeah. if you're in the building, then you're probably okay to see the intranet. If you're, if you're in this room, then you're probably able to see that if we can identify. You know, how do you do that? And how do you make getting onto a system less onerous and, 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 and more, more user-friendly? Yeah, I mean, there's a well. Interestingly, one of our another one of our future topics is um, uh, I think it's something like why is identity so hard? Um, and we, we 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 talk about the bewildering range of stakeholders who are involved in the justice system, um, and how you know dealing with the identity of judges, police, solicitors, outsourced suppliers, contractors, staff members, and and throwing all that into a kind of mixed pot of these people need access to this service um, can start to kind of really explode the identity space and, and the complexity of that. Um, but I do, I do think those those questions can be answered with the future technology. And, and there's a there's a kind of uh, architectural principle that we've kind of been working on for a while, which is it's something like um, effectively all networks should be considered untrusted. Um, the, the thing you should care about is the place where the user is and the service um, and everything in between is untrusted it's effectively the internet 
Um, and I think if you take that philosophy, whilst there's a huge journey, you know, to achieve that in, in any organisation, I think, and, and technology industry itself probably needs to evolve a little bit. It's definitely going in that direction. Um, I think you will. I think you will see that kind of philosophy of the untrusted network kind of become pervasive. Um, but uh, I guess in terms of other other kind of topics, um, we've got we've got an interesting one. Um, and, and this this kind of goes to the heart of whether or not we're going to make this podcast public because there's a lot of stuff we kind of we, that we want to talk about and and the freedom with which we can talk about it does depend on how public it is. But we we, we really want to talk about GDPR. Um, we want to have a good old conversation about you know GD, what does what does GDPR mean for organisations? How do people feel philosophically about what GDPR is trying to achieve? You know you know can can and does GDPR go too far sometimes or is it not enough and and just to kind of get under the skin of GDPR which I think for a lot of people is just a little bit of a kind of scare term right now and um, but obviously working on that you know extensively at the ministry has been quite a kind of fascinating area to work in. Um, we want to we want to tackle cybersecurity, um, so trying to describe what cybersecurity looks like in an organisation like the Ministry of Justice because that's just a huge kind of multifaceted topic, you know, all the way through from, uh, you know, the, the, the technical details of, of staff and contractor access to operational systems, all the way through to our kind of protecting our, you know, the surface area of the ministry, the kind of digital services we offer. And, and, then, and then getting into the weeds of, of where cybersecurity starts playing with our our kind of funding and prioritization you know how how is it that we can modernize our legacy estate such that it's you know everything is naturally fully patched fully upgraded you know in support and so on um so that's 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 going to be a big big topic area um i mean other than that you know we've got ideas around talking about r d in government uh, i think i mentioned that earlier um something about uh, modern modern cloud hosting where that's going to go. I mean, we did our first podcast on. Uh, I think we went, we went, we spoke about Kubernetes for a bit, but I think we want to take that to the next level and talk about what does, what does a kind of modern containerized, like API-driven public cloud service look like in a public, you know, for a large public sector organization. And where, where's that going to go? Um, and just yeah, I mean, idea after idea, really. We're, um, I mean, we might even have a go at um, procurement at some point, but that would be, that'd be <laughs> even, even stickier one. That's a that's a tough one. Oh, I'd be a brave man that uh, started by trying to containerize procurement in government, but that's an entire episode, I think, of conversation. Uh, fascinating stuff. Thank you today for um, making the time to be able to talk with you, um, and. I think some really interesting stuff with his thinking around uh, how they go about assessing and playing with new technologies. The thing, though, that he was talking about with uh, the, the the effort that it takes for uh, taking existing things and making them public cloud-based and how there's a massive investment involved in doing that and how that for small businesses that are creating niche products for government... There's a real challenge there, and it's something I've observed over the last few years. And I think it's um, it's interesting that that they're seeing it as well on that side of the of the um, the supply chain. Well, it, I mean, it's it, it, 
plays a little bit into your comment about the BBC Micro and, and um, government investing in, in something which is going to have a return, I guess, doesn't it? Because at some point, people are going to have to bite the bullet. And the and my my take on it is that the the cycles of of politics don't always uh, lend themselves to long term decisions in that in that way. Uh, but just just like everybody else is finding out, or, or and and really, it's not it's not just a matter of um, economics that that with, without without any kind of um, nudging from the from the corporate world, the the likes of of Microsoft and Google, they don't want they don't want to be selling you on prem software, and they don't want to um, the likes of HP, you know, they don't want to sell you servers. They don't, they wouldn't mind selling to government, I guess, but. What they really want to do is 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 sell them to the the cloud providers because the the volumes are just so much bigger and therefore it just it it makes more sense than to be processing lots of piddly orders. So it pushes people to cloud because it, economically it makes more sense. Um, but as uh, we explored in the interview, that, that there is a significant investment to doing that, making that move. But the way it can help you think differently about then how you manage and maintain your software rather than continuing to um double down on technical debt um can be uh, well it's probably i i say can be i think it has to has to happen in in, in large organizations you know big big scale enterprises and, and government i'm more and more convinced though that actually the probably the sunk cost fallacy more than anything else but the only way to do the re-architecting is to start again from scratch and when you don't do that, and you and I have a a long running disagreement about uh, Office three six five as opposed to Google, but I think that that for me is case in point. Office three six five will never work properly because there's just too much legacy in there for it to ever be architected properly for the cloud. It will do the job, and it will be the easier transition for many organisations because it's less disruptive on the on the migration. But it's never going to work fully or coherently because it was designed for a very different world, and it has legacy stemming back to you know two generations before that probably. And so, for SMEs who are playing in very niche areas, the concept of having to throw away all your code is just beyond them in many cases. But they'll never get it working right if they don't. I think it's a matter for me. The, the the disagreement we've had about that is, from my side, all about practicality. I don't disagree with the um, the the idealistic point, but there was a there was an interview with a guy on uh, the uh, PM the other day after the visa failure, and they managed to get some guy on who was he was very knowledgeable, but he had a real bee in his bonnet about how the banks banks were technically you know, incompetent and they. They were, they were all falling to bits. And Eddie Mayer um, uh, kind of asked a, you know, a fairly typically naive question about, oh, well, do you mean it all needs to be ripped up and start again? And the guy says, oh, well, yeah, need, that, that would be really difficult because it's very, very complex. The best, But, but it does need to be managed and um, in, investment needs to be made in the right areas, essentially just paraphrasing what he said. You have to kind of patch up piece by piece because there's no way there's no way of just saying oh, let's write a new banking system for the world it isn't possible and i think on a different scale but same sort of way there isn't there is no way of saying well let's let's do let's replace um office or 
let's replace government systems just one off. It doesn't. It just doesn't happen. It's too big a job. That is though the sunk cost fallacy. It's also the practical. It's the practical practical nature of, of things there's no way to do it it's it's like saying we ought to redesign humans because the, this the whole two arms business is just not it's just not working out but actually yeah prob- probably though what will happen is that stuff which will get replaced effectively will get replaced by substitution it will get replaced by things that aren't quite the same so if you see what's happening with you know email services are being substituted by a bunch of different things an email will wither away in the way that the fax machine withered away and it didn't get replaced by a cloud-based fax service. It got replaced by just doing stuff differently. Um, where you've got very niche suppliers providing very niche products to very niche big government things, the chances for that kind of substitution to happen are very limited. That's where it becomes problematic and at some point somebody there needs to be able to make the call and go, actually, no, it isn't worth trying to maintain the legacy anymore. But as you, as you build up um, technologies uh, such as Docker, for example, it means that you can then start to substitute parts out. All right, There's a, there, are, there are lots of people that say that actually what you find is that it's just too difficult. But uh, maybe yeah, maybe this is a way. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not going to say it's not. I think I think we've got to use the tools that are available to us really, and 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 use them in the best way we possibly can. So. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I do understand the the idealistic point. A uh, couple of interviews coming up in the next few weeks, uh, where we've got a few people exploring some of these very issues. But uh, that's to come. Anyway, that's it for this week, and uh, hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week. So thank you for listening and thanks again to the MOJ and Dave Rogers for the interview. We will be here again next week. You can catch us at WB40podcast.com, at WB40podcast on Twitter and on iTunes and Stitcher. <laughs>